A lot of people are really angry right now, and I get why they're angry. But there are things that can be done when we give ourselves permission to step into a positive framework. We're able to come up with solutions and doing away with the endemic racism that has existed in systems, not just in the US, but all over the world in different shapes, sizes, and forms. That is a beautiful place to start. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is, I think, Manisha, this might be our number one geographic topper in terms of most distance between uh, our Great Minds headquarters here in my daughter's room in my house uh, and your home in Singapore. <laughs> well, I tell you what, at least we're, we are not flouting any social distancing rules. We've done the best social distancing. Yeah, we are really. I mean, can. this is e- e- exemplary, <laughs> exemplary. Yeah. So I'd love to start and go back to my hometown of New York in 1999 and you working for Reuters Television. Tell me about that time. You were very young, I think, 22, 23. So actually, what took me to New York, it was all about a boy. (laughs) So my, my now husband was my boyfriend at the time. And he was sent to New York to work for Citibank. And, you know, it was tough because I was mostly living in London and we were, we had this long distance relationship and I worked a four day week in London. So we had this crazy situation where at least once a month, I would fly to New York for a weekend to see him. And you might think, you know, someone who was a young journalist of that age, how on earth could they afford to travel to New York every month uh, and pay for that plane ticket? But actually, that was the time when Virgin Atlantic and British Airways went into this massive war over the Atlantic. Virgin Atlantic has accused British Airways of a dirty tricks campaign designed to put them out of business. Tonight, the man at the centre of the controversy speaks out for the first time about the campaign against Richard Branson and his airline. If they'd been able to put him out of business, they'd have been very happy to do so. And they were discounting their prices. And you could pick up a round-trip ticket, including tax, for £110. I mean, it was nothing at that time. So, you know, I would. I would finish my shift really early on a Thursday, and I'd go straight to Heathrow. And then by Thursday night, I was in New York. It was absolutely brilliant. And I would get back in time for my shift on a Monday morning back in London. So, obviously... After a while, that's not really tenable. And so one summer, I was speaking to one of my counterparts in New York from London. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could build the relationship between the London TV team and the New York TV team by switching roles? Wouldn't it be good if one of us could come over there and one of you could come here? And then she said, well, that's great. Why don't we switch? And that was it. So the idea was born. And we went to the boss and said, you know, this is what we want to do. Could we do it? And I remember being 
22 and I went to my boss and said, yeah, I, I want to do this. She said, this is a great idea. In fact, we'll pay for your ticket. So, you know, in those days, you really didn't earn much as a, as a, you know, a new journalist. So for someone to then say, okay, we're going to send you club class to New York. That was it. I was like, I've arrived wow. in life. <laughs> That's my oh, first that, that, club class that, ticket on British Air. Nowhere to go, but nowhere to go, but down after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was really exciting. So yeah, I got sent to New York and, and it was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I got to switch. And one of my jobs actually was to go and support our reporter at the New York Stock Exchange. And in those days, and it's probably still the same today, I'm not entirely sure, you had to have obviously a security pass. So there were only two people in the Reuters TV office in New York that had the security passes. It was myself and and the the markets correspondent. Only one day I went into work nice and early at the New York Stock Exchange. I went up to the canteen and I got my morning omelette and came back down to the booth and was enjoying my breakfast. And suddenly I realized, wait a second. The reporter's not here. Where is she? And I called my boss and said, you know, the reporter's not shown up. What's going on? Is she sick? What's going on? You know, we have stock reports coming up that we need to do from the floor of the NYSE. And that was when I was told that the correspondent had resigned either the night before or that morning. And then I was told, well, you're the only one who has a security pass. So, hey, you're going to have to do the stock market report today live on air which I had never done before. So it was a complete baptism of fire. And that was really a big turning point for me because that was my first big break into doing business and financial news. And to start it from the floor of the NYSE in New York at that time in history, it was phenomenal. It was so exciting. And I remember uh, Maria Bartiromo was doing the reports for CNBC at that time from the floor. And Maria Mm -hmm. was in the booth next to the Reuters booth. And so I sort of saw her come up the stairs one day and it's like, Maria, I've suddenly been told I have to go to the floor and I have to do this. Can you help? What do I do? And she was incredibly supportive and incredibly kind and spent some time giving me advice. A warm welcome to World Business Report. I'm Anisha Tank in New York. And in London, I'm Darshini David. Good to have you with us. As you were hearing from Nima, we will be live in Davos a little bit later in the program. So let me ask you this. Just a few years before, you suddenly find yourself, you know, asking Maria Bartiromo for advice on how to report live from the stock exchange. Just a few years before that, you're a student. You're at Regents Park Community College. You're at Taunton's College, you're at University of Oxford, and and unless I'm mistaken, you didn't really study journalism, it's more philosophy, politics, economics. Were there any hints going back to your school days of the career path that you would find yourself on? <laughs> I suspected you might ask me that question. Um, no. <laughs> so not at all, actually. There was something else that happened around the same time when I was 15. And that was my father signing up for cable for the first time. So I'm giving away my age now because, you know, that was when cable first households in my part of the world. And I turn on this new amazing toy that we have at home. Morning, madam. Can I help you? Are you the manager? I am the owner, madam. What? I am the owner. I want to speak to the manager. And I switched on CNN. So CNN International. And up until that point, 
I had only experienced the BBC News, which has a fantastic reputation. This is a presentation of CNN Business News. And there were lots of foreign correspondents, so you did see stories come in from all over the world. From CNN London, this is World Business Today. Good evening. The trader that sank bearings into the red will be in Frankfurt Court Friday. Nick Leeson, detained at the Frankfurt Airport early this morning, is being moved into police custody. Meanwhile, German authorities await official word from Singapore on a possible extradition. So far, no formal charges of fraud have been filed after trading losses of more than $1 billion in Singapore. But I was sitting there and I was watching CNN and it was Relitza Vasilova, who is an absolutely lovely, lovely lady. Uh, you know, I worked with her at CNN. She has now left CNN, but she was one of the early anchors hired by Ted Turner. It's interesting uh, what you were saying about all the restrictions that she will have to work with. I was also wondering, how is she going to communicate with her boss, you yeah. know, the, the, the minister? I mean, how will they have a separate wing for her? Uh, but then on the other hand, I was also thinking that... Uh, this, as you were mentioning, could be the beginning of a loosening up of uh, the grip of the hardline religious establishment, which is creating those rules. Absolutely. And, a lot and I was watching Rilitsa Vasilova bringing together all the threads of international news in front of my eyes, bringing the world into my living room. And I remember thinking that that was so incredibly brilliant. It was cool. And I felt connected. And I remember having this thought that, ooh, I think I would love to do something like that one day. But it's like one of those fleeting moments where you feel connected to an idea or a concept and then obviously it lodges itself somewhere in the back and beyond of your mind and then you move on and you forget about it and I go back to school and I'm back on this track of wanting to be a doctor. But I was called in to be told that I was not capable of making the grades, that they didn't think I would be a good medic. And that absolutely battered my confidence. So it was actually an all-girls school, and I, I had an underlying feeling at the time that it was to do with race, because I was the only kid of colour who was in that class and I was the one getting A grades in my papers to that point. I was always the one with my hand up answering the questions. Why was it that I, out of everyone, was called in to be told, we don't think you're good enough. You're going to not make this. And we think that you should change your, your choices, that you should be doing different subjects. You should not be pursuing a career in medicine. And, you know, that had, can have a huge impact on a 16, 17, 18-year-old, you know, I was 16 at the time. Maybe that was just what was always in the trajectory. I'd love to talk about something that's a little more philosophical with you about the news. You know, here in the States, and I know you've, you follow our politics as well, you now have entirely different views of the news, depending on what side of the aisle you sit on and how far away you are from the middle. And in America, we've really gotten away from what you would just call the news. There are people that rail against CNN. There are people that rail against Fox News and what's even further to the right of Fox News. What's your take on that? 
I think every single day our position on this is evolving. But of the organisations that I've worked for, so I've worked for, like you say, CNN, the BBC and Reuters, I am very grateful when I look back that my career started with Reuters because Reuters is all about facts. You know, one of the first things you do when you join one of these organizations is you go on training courses. And I remember going on the Reuters training courses and it started off with business and financial news. You can't deviate too much from facts because it's all about the data or it's all about verbatim. What did this central banker say about their expectations for global growth or U.S. growth or whatever it might be? You know, you've, you, you basically are the conduit that brings that data, the facts, the quotes straight to the trader in the trading trade on the floor, the trading floor of the bank or whatever it might be so that they can make logical uh logical unfettered decisions about managing people's money you know so that was really simple it was logical it was simple there was no blur around the edges you knew exactly what you were supposed to do and then I moved to the BBC and at the BBC you sort of build on that a little bit because the BBC being what it is and it's this organization funded by you know the license fee that people across Britain pay for you had this great sense of responsibility to get it right and to never be partisan. And, you know, the laws around that are very strong. You, you study all of this when you're at journalism school. You know, I had to I did the diploma in broadcast journalism before I started on my journalism career. So that is a core tenant of that that course for you. But then you begin to see where your role as an influencer of some kind or isn't a sort of a, a valued opinion former begins to come in. It didn't really affect me so much when I was at the BBC because I was working again in business and finance news at the beginning. And again, it's a very, very logical. It's all about the facts. Let the facts speak for themselves. Um, but it's where the contextualization comes in that you had to be really careful. And I was always very particular about, well, if I'm going to say this, this has to come from both sides of the angle. So if I'm going to give content, if I'm going to talk about a particular company, I'll tell you what analysts are saying about that company, but then I must also tell you what that company is saying about the company. And I will leave you to make up your own mind that you should be well-informed enough to do so. And when I got to CNN, again, it was, it was another evolution of that. And CNN is obviously an American news organization. Its culture was so different to what I was used to working for the BBC and then before that Reuters. So getting used to that was something else. Um, I was given the honor of being asked to represent CNN International at a huge media conference in the Philippines a couple of years ago. And at that conference, we were asked to talk about truth and trust in the media. And the reason this comes to my mind is it made a profound impact on me. To prepare for that particular address, we needed to pull together policy, CNN policy on truth and trust and how important it was to hold the feet to the fire, so to speak. And to that point, included in this presentation, we had curated comments from some of the biggest names in you know, CNN in the US. So Chris Cuomo, for example, who I'm sure you know well, uh, Wolf Blitzer. We also had Chris comments from Christiane Armanpour about how important it was to uphold the principles of democracy 
by asking the questions, by asking all the right questions. Um, you know, and we put together this half hour presentation and the audience was visibly moved. There were people who came up afterwards to say they had tears in their eyes. But why? Why am I making a point of this? Because it was the Philippines. And, you know, you'll know that the Philippines is in the news at the moment over the arrest of Maria Ressa, who started this organization called Rappler. But Maria has a very big international reputation uh, reporting on President Rodrigo Duterte. Now, she has been arrested over a cyber libel law in the Philippines. Welcome back. A court in the Philippines has found journalist Maria Ressa guilty of cyber libel. Ressa is a former CNN bureau chief and the founder and CEO of the news site Rappler, which has produced extensive coverage of President Rodrigo Duterte and his deadly war on drugs. I make this point because I go back to what I was saying, that things are evolving and everyone now has an interpretation on their version of what is right. And it brings up, you know, you're quite right. It is a hugely philosophical conversation. I think I absolutely believe in facts. I believe in us delivering the facts, but it is also important that we give context around the facts, but whose context does that become? I think the only thing that you can resolve to be is the most truthful and honest that you can be. And that for me, it was always about fight for the good. I have to say that from a personal point of view, I wish I could see more organizations, particularly in the United States, come together to find more middle ground, to just fight for what is right. And for me, what is right is making sure that you have kept your populace informed well-informed enough that they can make good decisions that will lead to good outcomes. But again, that is interpreted in so many different ways. It boils down to where does your conscience lie on these matters? I know, perhaps you're going to tell me that I'm fudging it, but it's a really difficult one because everybody has a different version of what the truth is. Yeah. And that, and just that statement itself is incredible. I mean, I happen to be personally, a huge CNN fan. And I hold Ted Turner in really high regard. He was very influential in my career. Do you remember the Goodwill Games? Yes, yes. So I had written the bid for New York City. My early career was all in sports, and I was executive director of the Sports Commission for New York when I was 23. So this is a long time ago. Wow. And, and 1987. And we bid for, our original goal was to bring the Olympics to New York. And when Atlanta got the 96 games, ironically, you know, CNN's hometown, it was uh, out of fear. This is interesting. You'll like this story. So Olympic are bid, Olympic games are bid seven years out from the games. So the 96 games vote was in 89, one year after 88, when the Olympic games were in Seoul, Korea. And you may recall, you were I think you were too young to know this then, but there was a lot of concern, which won't surprise you, about North Korea and that they would do something during the games to disrupt them. And the games went off without a hitch, but when the vote was taken, the IOC was not of a mind to take a risk, to go into a place that was viewed as somewhat politically risky. And Greece at that time was very unstable. And they were the overwhelming favorite to host the 96 games because those were the centennial Olympic games go back to Greece. 
And Atlanta ended up getting it because of the political concerns about Greece, and it was viewed as a safe choice. So when Atlanta got the Olympics, that knocked us out, New York, you know, for any Olympic Games anytime soon. So we decided to bid for the Goodwill Games, which we won. And I spent the whole summer of 94 with Ted Turner. And I remember very vividly, you know, we saw Bernard Shaw was on TV the other night. I guess it was a, a 40th anniversary of something. Maybe it was CNN. That's CNN 40 years old already. Is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was the 40th anniversary. Exactly. And, and I remember like with Bernard Shaw watching the war in the Gulf in 93. And yeah. it was CNN's reporting when they had reporters, you know, in Baghdad that, really was, in many ways, you know, the rocket ship that cable news has been on ever since. And that was all Ted Turner. It is amazing. And, you know, over the course of my career, I've been able to meet some really interesting people. I would love, I would love to meet Ted Turner. But one of the very interesting people I have met is Bill Rohde. And I don't know if you know Bill, but Bill Rohde was the founder of MTV. And I asked mm -hmm. Bill, you know, what was MTV all about? How come, you know, you're, you came out of, you're a military man. Like, how did you come out of right. that and end up setting up MTV? And he said, well, because we just had so many problems that the youth population were facing, the world was facing, that this generation needed to take up arms and do something about, you know, yeah. global warming, yeah. HIV, AIDS. And he's still a big supporter of the movement to find, you know, treatments for support HIV, AIDS treatments. Um, and Bill said, you know, we realized that music was the way to reach people on a global level. And I'll never forget the the ads about global warming that you would see on MTV and how it just brought it completely up in your face. Uh, right. and it was it was the cool thing. You know, if you had a subscription to MTV, that was the coolest thing. I remember going to a friend's house and being so excited to watch it. But then also feeling very well informed. It wasn't just about the music. I came away as part of the movement. So it I felt the same when I first started watching CNN as well. I came away with this feeling of being part of a global movement of interconnectivity. And this was before, you know, the internet was a regular part of our lives. America, demand your MTV! I want my MTV! I want my MTV! I want my MTV! Call your cable company and say, I want my MTV! But I think what these larger new goals these larger news organizations do for us that is so important is they have the capability to, to do all the checking, to do all of the contextualization, to really dig deep on the data and to do the legwork that is necessary to find news stories and to check news stories to the extent that you can really trust them. And particularly with the pandemic, this is what we're seeing is we've realized how much misinformation is available on social media. So you've seen a big movement towards big news organizations because you know that they've got the infrastructure and the checks and balances to make sure that what they're giving you is fact, not fiction. And this has become an increasing problem as we see the rise of social media. There's obviously a shift change in the zeitgeist at the moment. I think what's wonderful and combining what we do in the news with what I've been seeing happening in the, the frame of business and economics. Since the beginning of my career, the big shift I've seen is that investors are becoming more demanding and more conscious of 
the, the, the world that we have to embrace, the world that our children will inherit. So now that you're getting more emphasis on sustainable investment, for example, you've got also movement from the top where governments are encouraging more investment in sustainable companies or, or environmentally friendly c- companies. That sort of investor-led pressure has really helped. I mean, banks, for example, that are dropping funding for 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 coal production, this kind of thing. This is a massive shift change from the way things were when I first started. Um, and it's wonderful to see that. It's wonderful to see the connections. Because I always used to feel like the business and finance world, you know, when you're standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange or if you're at the NASDAQ market site, it becomes like sport. It's like you're operating within within a small chamber of your own, you're just in that one little world. And even though you're talking about stocks of multinational companies that are affected by something that goes on in far-flung parts of the world, at that point in time, you're just there talking about the specifics of a movement in price of a particular stock. And you become stuck in that moment, almost like you're talking about the result of a particular football game or whatever it might be. And it becomes like sport. I mean, CNBC is so good at this. You know, it's it's made business news exciting for some, even though there's a lot of bad news around at the moment. But it's it's pacey and it's involved in its delivery. It comes across that way. But to see how much now people are making that relationship between our health and what's happening in the economy, that direct relationship has become so close and so palpable. It was always there. It just wasn't as palpable as it is today. Uh, And people are realizing it does matter how I live my life. It matters to the bottom line, not just for me, not just for my family, but for entire countries. If today I don't wear a mask and I happen to be an asymptomatic case of COVID-19, tomorrow that may blow up in my community. And when it does, and the government comes in and shuts all the retailers in my local area down and people lose their jobs, who can ignore that connection? Who can ignore it? I want to ask you just, you've covered so many, you know, seminal moments in the last 20 years, and I'd be remiss not to ask you just for some reflections on Hong Kong. You were there when it first burst onto the scene in the way that it has. You were there for the student protests, and I'm sure you're a keen observer of what's happening now. What do you remember from reporting on the ground at that time, and what's your take on what's happening now, and what will likely happen going forward? So yeah, I I remember walking into the office and being told, you know, CNN in Hong Kong. So I lived in Hong Kong at the time, I've lived in Hong Kong off and on for six years. I walked into the office and was told, OK, we need you to go down and cover these protests. They seem to be getting quite serious. Hong Kong's so-called umbrella movement has been going on now for almost three weeks. And one of the really interesting uh, things that we've observed is the spontaneous initiatives that just keep springing up. It could be the democracy wall. It could be umbrella art, as it's known. But the more recent one that we've seen are the student desks. And here we have an array of them. And they really have come out of nowhere. Volunteers just came along and set them up. They're free for students and to use and students get When we got down there, I was blown away just by how many people were down there. And it was their age. 
we were meeting people all the way from the age of 14, 15, 16, up to postgraduate university students. There were older people there as well. Uh, and there was a real sense, actually, of peaceful community. It may look like a fairly nondescript road junction, but actually the area you've just seen is going to be the centrepiece for a big police operation that will play out early on Thursday here in Hong Kong. In fact, police are going to assist bailiffs in carrying out an injunction order in that area there to remove occupiers. But what everyone wants to know is what's going to happen about the rest of this tent city that has sprung up here over the last 11 weeks. This has all been connected to the umbrella movement, this unprecedented event here in Hong Kong. And the police are basically giving protesters who've been camping out here, some of them day and night for the last two months, they're giving them two choices. One is go home on your own. The other is be arrested. This was just a bunch of students at that time, mostly students who loved their Hong Kong culture, loved their language, loved their cuisine, loved everything that makes up their identity, their common identity. And they felt threatened by the idea that that could just be taken out from underneath them without their permission. And so they protested. But when you hear the word protest, you think of something aggravated. This was not aggravated in any way. It was so peaceful. They were so kind. We would sit in our reporting position. We were there the whole day. We would do 12, 15, 16 hour days reporting from morning all the way through till night. People would come and offer us food. They would love to come and speak to us about what we were reporting on. They never tried to influence us at all. I remember one chap coming by telling me he was actually a visitor from the mainland. And he was so excited because he was meeting a, a journalism crew from CNN. And he said, oh, I've heard so much about you guys. It's so exciting to meet you. I really love what you do. Uh, and it was fascinating to talk to him. The mood down there was almost festive at times and just so much creativity because a lot of them were young art students and they created boards of artwork which conveyed their ideas. They had set up desks. I remember doing one story about how they had set up workstations because a lot of them were missing their university lecturers, lectures. So they were actually bringing their textbooks and they were doing academic support groups on the street because they had cordoned off a large part of one of the thoroughfares in, in Hong Kong, key thoroughfares, actually. But any idea back then, I mean, earlier you described it as an uprising. It certainly didn't feel like an uprising. It felt like friendly persuasion on a mass scale. But it had I don't want to use the word a sting in its tail because it wasn't a sting. It had an incredibly astute, intelligent argument. Uh, and when I look at what's happening today, I, I feel it's, it's tragic because it's all happening in combination with this pandemic. There was definitely room for dialogue there, a dialogue that I feel hasn't happened. In terms of where it goes from here, I think the writing is very much on the wall. And if you have lawmakers in Hong Kong itself, and this has been the point of the Hong Kong people, they feel that their government, a lot of them feel that their government isn't standing up for them. There are those who could say, well, 
are you really talking about all of Hong Kong people? One thing I can tell you from being there on the ground and seeing the protests is it's not just students. On the days when people were not working, on Saturdays and Sundays when mass protests were being called, everyone was there. There were families with children. There was the older generation, the younger generation, kids, students, you name it. People from across the demographics came out and they were basically coming out to say, we want to preserve our culture. We want to preserve our identity. And no one is upholding that for us. Um, you know, it's a very difficult call where it goes from here. But more or less, the writing seems to be on the wall. It, it seems that diplomacy in the traditional sense is so in abstention these days what happened when we would have these conflicts, you know, we would have, whether it was a more active UN, and I know the UN's very active and a lot of important issues around eradication of po extreme poverty and certainly, you know, doing all that it can as a body, albeit with limited actual power on the climate change issue. But do you see a, a disappearance almost of diplomacy and traditional dialogue that way to solve problems like that? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think a lot of people are asking that question. Look, I'm, I'm a news journalist. I can't say that I'm going to base my answer here on years of academic research because I've absolutely not done that. But what I can tell you is covering all, the story, all these stories over all of these years, one thing that has really jumped out at me is the lack of statesmanship. It's as if the quality of statesmanship has fallen over the years. And I think some of that also comes from the rise in populism. The rise in, it's been very difficult and people, it's almost as if politicians have not been prepared for the way that society has evolved, particularly since the rise of the internet particularly since people have found a voice of their own. It used to be the case that if you wanted to affect change in your local area, you would go to your local lawmaker and you would exert pressure and you would come up with a campaign and that would somehow have to be the result of physical face-to-face -face dialogue because that was the nature of the world back then. You couldn't just get online and tell everyone how you felt or there wasn't the proliferation of news channels that there is today or outlets on radio to talk about whatever you want to talk about as there is today. Uh, you had to have face-to-face -face dialogue. You had to have really clever joined up thinking. I feel like from what I'm seeing, and again, I, I'm no academic. This is just my personal view from what I see, but maybe I'm living in, a, in an echo chamber. Most of my colleagues agree with this, is a lot of people in politics are getting into politics because it's somehow a selfish game, because it's somehow a career move. For me, and having studied politics and economics back in the day, and also philosophy, which is a massive chunk of that pie, is why would you get into public service in the first place? It is to serve. What has happened to the notion of service? It seems to me like a lot of it has become about me, myself and I. How do I protect my power base? And there's also a lot of fear around, you know, overnight we've heard of President Trump signing an executive order uh, on police reform. 
But I look at that and I put it in contextually and you can't ignore the fact that there's an election coming up this year. So what's the agenda? You're always asking, what's the agenda here? You know, you, you want it to be about the right issues. Absolutely, they should. There needs absolutely police reform needs to be addressed. Something needs to be done. We're seeing this right across the United States and we're seeing this called for right across the world. But I do wonder about agendas these days. And also, also, people are so judgmental. They feel very quick to jump in and comment. And so it's also very difficult on the other side of this equation to be a politician in today's day and age because you are completely exposed all of the time for all of your ideas. And absolutely, your feet should be held to the fire because you are in this position because you're responsible. You're supposed to be responsible. You're supposed to be responsible, particularly in a democratic nation, for upholding the principles of democracy. But all too often, I feel like there's a lot of manipulation going on. You know, we were talking about Hong Kong, and we're not necessarily talking about a democratic authority where Beijing is concerned. But who can draw the line? Where do you draw the line on an agreement that was made back in 1997 about one country, two systems? Who can even uphold the other side of that bargain? That's the other problem. You know, Great Britain can't. That's obvious. It hasn't managed to. Nor can the United States. A lot of this boils down to who's in charge these days. Once upon a time in the Cold War, you had this idea of mutually assured destruction, and that kept everybody in its place. But we're living in a really different world, and all of these tectonic plates in politics are shifting. Uh, it makes the world a very complex place. So, you know, every morning you're talking about the global economy on the breakfast huddle. What are some of the top stories that you talked about this morning or, you know, that you'll be talking about tomorrow morning? What, what What's on the top of your list on the news oh. right now? Right now. <laughs> well, right now, it's obviously COVID-19. Money FM 89.3, best of the breakfast huddle. The next two weeks are going to be so crucial. In fact, the past couple of days, we've been paying attention very closely at the gov.sg WhatsApp service on the new cases that are reported every night, and they come in just before bedtime. Yeah, that's right. So last night, so we heard that there are 66 new cases of COVID-19, along with two new clusters. So one of those is at Little Gems Preschool at Angmo Kyo Street. The other is at Kranji Lodge, which is a foreign worker dormitory. And we already know yeah. that the biggest clusters are in one of those dormitories here in Singapore. Well, what is it, 20,000 20, workers 000, yeah. in lockdown right yeah. now? COVID-19 is in our headlines every morning. The biggest story for us was, uh, I think it's pronounced dimexamethasone, which is this steroid and research coming out about it. You know, tomorrow, if there's a vaccine, that is going to be our headline story right across the board. Uh, yeah, mostly it's the pandemic at the moment, but there are some other big stories that have started clicking in. And one of the big ones that was on my radar has been the dispute between India and China. And we've now learned that 20 troops on the Indian side have been killed. And a lot of questions asked about what's actually going on there. Is this the next flashpoint that we have to be worried about? And it's actually a very complicated situation and it involves alliances throughout South Asia. So you're not just talking about India here, you're talking about China, Nepal, 
Pakistan, where all of these countries fit into the equation. That was a story that we were following this morning. But undoubtedly, we are following what's happening in America very closely. So this breakfast huddle show that I do, we wake up every morning to all of the handover from what's been happening stateside. Um, We normally kick off the show with a review of what's happened on the US stock markets, but everything is so integrated right now. So one of our biggest stories has been Black Lives Matter. We've reported on it pretty much every other day since um, that horrendous incident. And, you know, I can only say that my heart goes out to everyone who has been connected to that story in some way. But in particular, you know, we have to applaud the hero, the 17-year-old girl who brought that video to everyone's attention because it has sparked a movement now, uh, which has gone global. And people are waking up to a really important issue that we've buried for so long and not talked about. And and it's really strange as, as a British person who grew up in the UK, who's lived in the US, who's been exposed to these issues herself, who's experienced it at school, the kind of prejudice that goes with being in the minority race when you're in these institutions and coming to Singapore, which has a very different understanding of this and has a lot of social cohesion. It's been fascinating to see that story play out and be reported here. But what I did want to share was my, my, when I was growing up, I was really exposed to a lot of these issues and the discussion of these issues because my mother was the chair of our city race equality council. And she was on a lot of boards and went to a lot of meetings. And in those days, you know, you went along. So I remember being a 10 year old girl going along with my mom to council meetings or going along with my mom to uh, the race equality meetings. And I was downloading all of this stuff from a really young age. And we didn't talk about what we were angry about. And I think I'm really keen to make this point. A lot of people are really angry right now. And I get why they're angry. But there are things that can be done when we give ourselves permission to step into a positive framework. We're able to come up with solutions and doing away with the endemic racism that has existed in systems, not just in the US, but all over the world in different shapes, sizes, and forms. That is a beautiful place to start. We need to start doing something positive. The fact that people are now talking about reform, the fact that people are saying, you know, We are upset about our history. Let's address history. Let's have a reset. Let's say we've got to move past this. And I think about South Africa, right? And you think about the amount of energy that was put into reconciliation. That was so important in moving South Africa forward after the horror of apartheid. That was terrible. But what was encouraged and also encouraged by the great Nelson Mandela, who I have to say, one of the highlights of my career was being able to meet Nelson Mandela. And I did, I met him in London and it was fantastic. But it sits with me that he was all about forgiveness. And that is the only way that we move forward is we move forward in forgiveness and positivity that something can be done. What is wonderful And I am so troubled that it had to take this terrible situation for everyone to realize it is that There can be and there has to be a reform, but I put the emphasis on there can be and it can be done in positivity. So for me, this is not a complex story at all. I grew up hearing this stuff. I grew up dealing with this stuff, but I also grew up knowing that something can be done and should be done.
that story of what happened in South Africa, which was only about 1993, 1994, that there was that peaceful transfer of power virtually without bloodshed is probably the most incredible event of the last, you know, I, I don't know how, I don't know what to compare it to, but that that happened because of Mandela's commitment to, you know, you have to become friends with your enemy, you know, to understand your enemy. And that's how you make him your friend. Yeah. And that he, you know, believed that the measure of a life was how you help others. We sure need more of that right now. Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. <laughs> you sort of think, you would think that all of us dealing with a global pandemic would help us realize how we are all under one banner. You know, we are, for me, there's only one color in life. And that color is the color of love. We're all human. You peel back the skin, we all look the same. You know, yeah. we are no yeah. different from one another. That was one of my favorite uh, banners that I saw when I was watching, catching up with the news in London. And I saw that there was a protest going on outside the Houses of Parliament. And there was a lady there shouting that, uh, shouting that out. I won't claim it at all. It came from her. And she said, there is only one color and that is the color of love. And that's what it said on her banner. And I hope that that is the realization that comes from all of this. If we all held that idea in our hearts, how different would the world look today? It would be a much yeah. more positive, peaceful place. And that's the world I'd love to see. And I mean, just tying it all back to my career, I remember just going back to that day when I sat there saying that would be really cool to do something like that, working for the likes of CNN. Why? Why did I say that? Because retrospectively, I now understand that what I was tapping into was this feeling of connectedness. It is something that every human being looks for. Sometimes we look for it through our phones. We're constantly on our phones, on whatever. <laughs> we're on WhatsApping our friends or Snapchatting with our friends, but we're just trying to be connected. We're trying to feel a part of something. And this is one of the reasons why social distancing and being in lockdown has been tough for a lot of people. It's you know, we've seen all the reports about it causing a mental health crisis. It's because we haven't learned yet how to appreciate that actually we are all one. We are connected. I don't need a WhatsApp text to prove it to me. Finding that within yourself is the point. And I think that's what all of these energies around forgiveness, around love, that's what they're all about. So to see reconciliation, to see positivity, to realize I am one with you and you are one with me. So their only way forward is together. That recognition is something I, I hope opens up much more. Yeah, well, listen, we could not have ended on a better note and a more positive note. Well, stay, stay well. You too. And uh, I'll stay in touch. All right, great. Take care. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.